This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a conversation about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. Many listeners to More Than Meets the IRB will be really familiar with Dr. Hancock's work. He has been a popular presenter at Primer and a well-known speaker on social media and communication. If you are unfamiliar with Hancock's widely discussed Facebook study, this is an excellent place to catch up. Why exactly were people upset when journalists began reporting on the Facebook study? Well, this is a more difficult question to answer than we think. There are unique risk and consent issues present in research using social media, partly because things like Facebook or Twitter play an increasingly important role in our daily lives. This episode, we do talk a bit about these changes. What do they mean for participants? What do they mean for researchers? And as someone with experience as an IRB member, Jeff Hancock has a lot of interesting things to say about the ethical review of this kind of research. Jeff Hancock is a professor in the Department of Communication at Stanford University. Professor Hancock is well known for his research on how people use deception with technology, from sending texts and emails to detecting fake online reviews. His TED Talk on deception has been seen over one million times. He was a professor of information science and communication at Cornell prior to joining Stanford in 2015. You said in a 2012 TED Talk that the way we communicate has been completely transformed. How have things changed? And that was even a few years ago now. Have things changed even more since then? Right, I think they have, and they'll continue to keep changing. I mean, the main way that it's changed is that we evolved for a long period of time as a human species to talk in a way that everything we said disappeared. And um, for a social scientists like myself that studies how people talk to each other, that was a huge uh, challenge. And then we see in the, really in the 90s, where people start communicating on an everyday basis by, by text means, um, where it really hits critical mass. I mean, we've been writing letters to each other for a long time, but that was pretty, relatively rare. Um, now you have everyday communication being um, produced online in email, text, uh, Facebook posts, you know, you, you name it, there's a ton of it. And so that's changing really the way we can look at communication. And we can't take any of that back in most cases. Yeah, we're seeing a big movement now, uh, both academically and in industry, around that notion of recordability. So um, we see uh, apps like Snapchat that purposely sort of delete, uh, at least for the user, um, messages. And then academically, we're seeing in Europe uh, a number of uh, great books coming out, one of them uh, by Victor Schronsberger, I think is his name, called Delete. And it's an argument for why it's important to be able to have the right to delete one's information. Yeah, so and the, the, the permanence of this new kind of data even that we're seeing in social media uh, as it's transitioning the way that we communicate and think and interact has created a lot of fields of research that didn't exist before. We talk about this a lot in the, the, the More Than Meets the IRB podcast, the way that uh, you know society is changing, so our behaviors are changing. Along with that, research is changing. Right. And we come into it on the ethical side of that. So we're, we're starting to see research that, that's harnessing this paradigm shift. And, and you really 
have a front row seat to this. Can you tell right. us a bit about the, the Facebook research that you've been involved with and the ethical challenges that came up during that process? Right. Yeah, that's a, a great way to put it. And um, it, 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 there has been a number of these ethical questions raised around, you know, a number of things. Privacy is one of the things that was talked about and discussed the most when I was working at Cornell's IRB, for example. In the case of the Facebook study, we have another set of ethical issues that come up. And so, you know, really briefly in a nutshell, the study um, involved uh, omitting some kinds of posts. So either posts that had uh, negative emotion words in them or positive emotion words or uh, uh, control um, messages that would be omitted from somebody's feed. So when somebody loads up their news feed, um, they can have anywhere from a thousand to two thousand possible um, posts that would go into the news feed. And the news feed algorithm is designed to try to find the most uh, relevant and engaging things for that user. So there's some ordering of these, say, 1500 messages. And what Facebook did in this uh, experiment was omit some percentage of posts that have either negative uh, emotion words in them or positive, and then looked at the um, language that those people produce. So the question was, if somebody sees fewer negative emotion um, worded posts, would they change the way they produced emotional language themselves? And that's what the study ends up finding. Um, okay. And, you know, it was to test this idea of like, is it emotional contagion where when other people feel bad, you feel bad, or when other people feel good, you feel good? Or was it this social comparison phenomenon where if other people are doing really well, that makes you feel bad? And the evidence for our, our case, at least in general, on average across, you know, uh, all kinds of circumstances, it looks like it was more of a um, kind of emotional um, similarity. And were people aware that they're, Facebook feeds were being slightly manipulated during this time period. No, they were not. And um, when you know, there was, so there was a large controversy and reaction to this. And part of that was I, I received email uh, personally. And um, what I've decided to do, and I've worked with some of the students in my lab. We've we've been analyzing. Well, I analyzed my email, and we've been analyzing the way other people have written about the uh, the study compared to say other studies or the study compared to other Facebook stories by say journalists. So we've looked at my, I've looked at my email. We've looked at, um, a sort of a media perspective, how do journalists write about this? We've looked at a scholar perspective. How did scholars do that? One of the main themes that comes up was the, um, I, I would say two really big ones. One was, um, kind of feeling shocked at, that, um, they'd been part of an experiment without their consent. And there's a general, widespread understanding by the public, I think, that they have some rights around being informed when they're experimented on. Uh, and the second was um, sort of surprise and shock that the newsfeed is um, manipulated and that it's not, a say, an objective window into one's social life. So the response, the shock, wasn't just in terms of an ethical violation, but even more of an existential uh, recognition of how important Facebook feeds are to us. That's right. One of the main themes that I pulled out of my email was that this the news feed matters and tinkering with it upset like that was upsetting because the news feed matters so you know i think there's a kind of a mainstream media narrative of social media which is that it's trivial and narcissistic and yes. that's what people had for breakfast um and i don't think that's true I, I mean it's definitely not true and that was certainly reflected in the in the comments i received where people were saying you know you you tinkered with this thing that matters to me and you may have affected my, my social life.
Uh, which do you think was the most grave response? Do people feel more uh, affronted by having not been consented, or do you think that people felt, uh, you know, that there is a, a risk here with manipulating something they're using in such an important way in their life? You know, it's a really good question, and I think the answer is all of the above. So I'll try and unpack them a little bit. So here, there was a, a real sense that, um, you know, advertising, for example, advertisers, people have a really good sense that they're being experimented on by advertisers and that when you walk in a store, you know, you're being manipulated to buy things. And when you watch TV, you're being manipulated emotionally even. And, and people are aware of that and, are, and have sort of like come to some sort of, some sort of peace, I guess, uh, with that. Um, and so there was just this lack of awareness that, that could also be happening in these sort of social media environments and that it happens on a regular basis, in fact. So that was one. The other was um, the consent issue. I mean, there really was this sense of like, wait, you're doing that. And, and the consent actually, I think, is tied interestingly with the fact that um, it wasn't just Facebook, it wasn't just a company, it wasn't just advertisers, but that there was an academic involved and that this was produced for science. Um, especially when we looked at the media, there was a lot of uh, metaphor and framing around um, manipulation, guinea pigs, and things like that. So it was almost like if this study had been done entirely and only for Facebook to improve its product, I think people may not have been that upset. But because uh, I, for example, was involved and the university was involved, I think people were felt that they had been um, manipulated for, for an abstract purpose. Like yeah. Yeah. So there seems to be a perception that that research involves a certain kind of uh, presence of rights that don't exist in other right. things we participate on a regular basis. That's right. And I think that's exactly right. And at first I felt that was a little bit paradoxical, like here we are mm -hmm. doing something, in my view, for the public good. But that, that is definitely not the way people thought about it. It was more, wait, if you're just doing this for science, then I... You know, you can't just do that. Um, so that, that was pretty clear. There's a third, um, which is the notion of risk. And as a social scientist, I talk a lot to the public. And I realize that one thing that we're not very good at is talking about effect sizes. Okay. Yeah. And so in this study, the effect size was, um, you know, minuscule. It, it was tiny. And um, it's difficult to convey that. So, for instance, that notion of risk just wasn't discussed. It was like, oh, wow. Uh, I mean, the worst of it, and I still remember seeing these these tweets were like, "Well, you could have killed somebody," and and then that that becomes kind of like the way people think about it. And it was so far from that. And we we had been doing a lot of research in the laboratory context with informed consent, the full, you know, typical protocol, where we knew that these effect sizes are tiny. We have much bigger manipulations in the lab. They're ongoing, continuous, multifactored, so they're big manipulations and we still produce a very small effect here you have a very indirect thing that um, these messages weren't even to the person they were just in their feed they were by other people they were non-directed and so the effect size you know to give you a sense of it in the most controversial condition in which uh, negative or sorry positive emotions were omitted mm -hmm. um, the effect size was such that we the person in that condition, on average, would produce four more negative emotion words per 10,000. And so, yeah, I mean, that would take years for somebody to write. Yeah, you, so you've been describing the Facebook study as something that sounds fairly simple, but this kind of research is actually very complicated to conduct, and the information you gather is very complicated to process. 
At any time during the development and implementation of the research, did you anticipate this response? Um, I, it's difficult to think of everything um, ignoring, you know, what happened. But I did feel this was, you know, different, and that there could be that this would produce some awareness that the newsfeed was uh, um, a curated or manipulated thing. But I didn't anticipate the kind of worldwide um, reaction that it received. Why do you think it was? This particular study that created that that public outcry, while these types of manipulations are actually routine in social media, mm-hmm. it's a great question, and there's probably many factors that all kind of converged. But here are some of the ones that I find really reasonable that um, others have have sort of speculated on. So, um, you know, my colleague Dana Boyd at uh, Microsoft Research um, pointed out that there could be just this. Um, kind of like uh, the needle that broke the camel's back and that there was a lot of things going on around social media where, um, you know, uh, trust or, or, or concern was being raised or primed. So you have Snowden happening the year before. Um, there's a lot of other kind of issues coming up around cyberbullying. And, and it may have been that um, social media and a lot of the large brands associated with it were sort of coming under more scrutiny. Okay. Um, so that might be one. Um, another, uh, and I'm going to be putting words in his mouth, is Charlton Gillespie, former colleague at Cornell, and he's also now at Microsoft Research, and pointed out that the metaphors we kind of think about for social media didn't really um, allow for manipulation. So the notion of uh, social media as a platform, his uh, argument is that a platform is this neutral thing that you know holds you and your content up, if you will, and platforms don't manipulate uh, people. And so there, he's made a nice argument that there's a you know when there's a clash in understanding of these new systems that can lead to a lot of um, disruption and concern. So we've arrived at a new cultural mood, perhaps, and that mood is also bound up in the way that IRBs review and understand this kind of social media research. I know there's been a lot of apprehension about how are we to, through the criteria of approval, really look at social media research? Are we supposed to start rethinking consent from the ground up uh, based on the fact that in culture notions of consent and privacy are shifting? Given your experience, what what can you tell us as people involved in a review of research, people interested in the work of IRBs, what's next for us? What what should we be thinking about social media research as we see it arrive? It's, it, you know, those are all really great questions, and I would say the 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 greatest thing that's happened to me out of all of this has been the literally hundreds of conversations I've had, and so I can sort of distill some of the main issues around that. The, okay, the IRBs. So I agree. Informed consent is a, is a real um, issue when it comes to studies, behavioral studies at scale. Um, one of them is because um, when you have hundreds of thousands, say, of people, any little bump in the road can throw the user off and they don't want to get involved. They want to use this product. So companies get very worried. The other is something more generally is that informed consent uh, is this really important thing. And it's hard to do in a simple and informative uh, way and so working out getting rid of more of the legalistic kind of language so that people can read it. And, and IRBs I think are making good strides there. Um, I think debriefing can start to play a role. 
um, where uh, you can do kind of like a funnel debriefing. So you you are um, made aware that you were part of a uh, experiment, say, or a study, and then you can go in and if you you can learn more, and if you want to learn even more, you can go in deeper, and if you want to say exclude your data from any publication or or you know get opted out in reverse for that, that that's an option and i realize it's not a perfect one um so i think that's one area the other um big ethical area i think is the regulatory one so i realize there'll be some clarity in the next couple of years when new irb rules come out yes potentially yeah and i know you guys have been waiting for a while um but i I think that uh, we're still okay. So this is just my representation. It's part of being an IRB and seeing all the hard work that gets done there. Is um, we're still moving away from the medical model and towards a model that will fit social science. And what that means is that you know so many of these studies that have to be reviewed are minimal risk um, uh, studies. And if we can. If these new rules allow us to app and processes, I guess, allow us to allocate the time to where they're needed, uh, rather than having to do the same amount of work on every application, I think that'll make a huge improvement. Yeah, that, definitely. Um, you've mentioned a few times that you have been on an IRB. I, I believe that's the Cornell IRB. Is that right? Yes. That's pretty rare that. Uh, we have an investigator who has also experience reviewing other people's work on an IRB using IRB language, IRB categories to look at how human subjects research uh, looks from an ethical perspective. As an IRB member, has that changed the way that you do research or plan research or, or think about what you're going to do in the future? Yes. It was a really great experience. I encourage all of my colleagues to do it. Um, I and, Okay, so here's the number one well, there's two really good reasons. One is to really get a good sense of like what what are primary concerns that have been sort of laid out. I mean, we all do our training, and that training's pretty good. It could be better, but being on an IRB and having to think about it is is you know there's nothing better. The other is that um, I think that in many institutions there's a bit of an adversarial approach both towards the IRB and and I think the IRB kind of you know, falls into that uh, reciprocation. And that, and that is that, and I've said this before, that you kind of like throw your your proposal over to the IRB and, you you know, you're hoping to get ethics. You're hoping to get it through ethics. I And so my experience is when you're on the other side, you realize, oh, no, these people are just trying to do their best and they're trying to reason through the things like you are and follow, you know, guidelines and rules. I would love to see if more uh, faculty and researchers got involved, a more collaborative process. And I'm, I'm hoping that's what these rules bring in, where we're, work, we're on the same team here. Everybody wants to do good work and do it in an ethical way, but make it less adversarial and more, um, more collaborative and less secretive. I'd love to have seen other people's proposals and what kind of comments they got. I understand some of the reasons for secrecy, but... You know, if, if you had written a great response to a proposal that came in that was similar to mine, boy, I'd love to see that. And the secrecy just goes against a lot of the ways that our, I think our um, culture is moving towards one of, you know, let's, let's, let's open source this in some ways. So these, this logjam between emerging social behavioral sciences, changing moods and culture about consent and privacy, and then IRB regulations that don't seem to fit either, Maybe the best way through this impasse is going to be collaboration, something as, as simple and eloquent as that. 
Yeah, I mean, wouldn't that be a fantastic way to have this work? And the collaboration will also have to span over to uh, industry. I think a lot of these companies, and Microsoft's been very public about it, others are, are moving forward. They're working out their own versions of IRB. They're not using IRBs. Um, they're developing sort of workflows. And I think IRBs should be taking a look at what these companies are doing. They have other constraints and incentives. One of them is they have to move quickly, much more quickly than, than we do. Um, they have a little bit more hierarchical structure, but we might be able to learn from them too, I think. Well, this has been fascinating. Thanks for a glimpse from the current Vanguard. My pleasure, Mike. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.